Thanks for listening to the Imago Day podcast. If you live in the Portland area, we'd love to invite you into the life of our community. You can find out what's going on at idcpdx.com slash events or on social media at Imago Day PDX. Good morning, Imago. Um, we're going to look at Psalm 133 today, and I want to reveal something about myself before we look at this passage, and that is uh, I'm one of those guys that um, when I park a car and it's slightly crooked, I get back in the car and I repark it uh, every time. And, and I judge those who don't do the same. So if you don't do it, uh, yeah, you know, um, pray for me. But, um, and so this sermon, uh, some of you are going to recognize the fact that I preached from it uh, in, on July 27th. And there's two reasons why I'm re-preaching on this passage. One is I felt like the sermon was a little crooked. And for the first time ever, I wanted to repark the car. Uh, the, yeah, yeah, no, I want to repark it. Uh, and I was like, why can't I do it? I just tried again. Uh, and the second is there was a theme as I reflected back on the passage that I feel is going to be really critical for us as a church as we move from now and, and through this uh, major transition uh, of the church. And so if you would look with me at uh, Psalm 133, uh, I'll be reading from the NIV version if you're going to be looking on your phone or if you have your Bible, or you can simply bring your attention to the screen. This is the reading of God's word. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like a precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Amen. My favorite confession of faith in all of Scripture, and I think even in human history, is actually is found in Mark chapter 8, where there's a boy who is possessed by an evil spirit, and Jesus' disciples were unable to cast that demon out. And Jesus comes down, he offers a couple rebukes, and he says to the father, the father brings Uh, the son to Jesus and asks for help. And Jesus says, everything is possible for the one who believes. The father said, this is the greatest confession in my opinion. He said, I believe. Now help my unbelief. I think it captures the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Christianity is not a faith of I believe, I believe, I believe, but it is a faith that is more honest than that. It's a faith that says I believe, but I also really, really, really struggle to believe. And I, wanna, I wanted to share that with you because as we look at Psalm 133, it is a beautiful song. It's a poem written to encourage and to exhort the body of Christ to continue down a life of faith in community. But I think that there are struggles with, that come with Psalm 133. Two struggles. One is the adjectives that are used of community, and number two is the genre of this psalm. The adjectives are good and pleasant. I believe, help my unbelief. Thank you, Sebastian. 
Good and pleasant isn't how we always describe Christian community. Maybe you are in a season uh, where you feel deeply rooted or connected to people who are helping you in your journey. Others of you are on the heels of some painful moments in the life of community. Others of you are just wondering whether community is for you even at all. And so good and pleasant isn't necessarily the adjectives that we would use always in our life uh, with other folks that are followers of Jesus. There are very few pains in this world like church pain. A pain that you get from a pastor, a pain that comes from a small group leader, or a pain that comes from a small group. That kind of pain really cuts deep because of what our faith means to us but also because there's, uh, those, there are these moments where we experience such a wide gap between God's intended design for the people of God and then what it actually is from day to day. When I was a kid, I remember <clears throat> in Sunday school, one of my cousins was just, you know, he was, he was a fun guy. He liked to kind of mess around and give teachers a hard time, and, and he wasn't doing anything extra, but he... Uh, was kind of giving the teachers some trouble. And one of the Sunday school teachers took, and I'm not talking about the, the, the safe scissors, I'm talking about the ones they used to cut cloth. She threw them at his head. And I was about seven or eight years old at the time, and if you don't know anything about me, I'm an Enneagram 8. If you don't know the Enneagram, it just means angry dude, okay? that will fight justice and like, I think I'm a superhero or something. And at seven to eight years old, I confronted that teacher and I told her what she did was absolutely unacceptable. She began to grab me by the wrists and try to submit me down on the ground. And then when I got home, I got beat that night because I caused a scene at Sunday school. That same church, our senior pastor, it was discovered he was having a long-time affair with another woman that wasn't his wife. The elders, one of whom was my dad, met at the church to talk about what are we going to do with this issue. While he was, uh, my dad and the elders were in the, uh, in the church office, uh, in a side room was my mom and some other elder wives that were waiting there for their husbands to finish this really controversial meeting. And what my mom told me was that the pastor showed up to the church uh, drunk in his underwear with a gun, banging on the doors, demanding that the elders come out. But my mom knew the history of this pastor, so she called immediately his son and said, you need to go home right now because your dad's been drinking and it's likely that he hit your mom again. And the pastor's wife was home, broken ribs, on the ground, couldn't get up. I have friends who have shared horrific stories of abuse and challenges in the church. And so, so, I think it is important to look at Mark chapter 8 and say, I believe, now help my unbelief. I believe that these stories are not the end-all, be-all of who God is and what he's able to do, but at the same time, they are real. They press up against my own faith, and it, and it challenges it to a place where I have to say, I believe, now help my unbelief. 
God, because you say that it is good and pleasant, I believe, but I need your help to overcome my cynicism and skepticism when imperfect people collide with other imperfect people. The struggle is not just with the adjectives, but the struggle is with the genre itself. The Psalm, uh, Psalm 133 I shared last time is one of nine what they call wisdom psalms. They are psalms that are not just about singing and worshiping God, but they're the rare psalms where the psalmist tries to infuse wisdom into it. And the reason why scholars discern this is one of those psalms is because they notice that uh, wisdom literature in the Old Testament and the ancient world would often have built into it this two ways of life uh, teaching. There is the way of death and there is the way of life. And scholars believe that this passage falls into that two-way wisdom passage, which means this, that what David is saying, which is really ironic, and we'll get to that in a moment. David is saying that this life of community, followers of Jesus coming together, choosing to be together, is, uh, uh, he, he says, this is life. And to ch not choose it is death. It's ironic because to this I say, I believe, help my unbelief. Walking with God in community is the way of life, however often it feels like the way of death. And we're not the only ones who think this, friends. An evangelist once shared with a class in seminary that I was attending that the number one reason statistically why people don't go to church is that they don't know a Christian. The number two reason people don't go to church is because they do know one. Oh, whoa, that hit, that hit. That's why I don't put fishes on my car. Because it's not like I'm cutting you off in Jesus' name, but like, just I am one of you. And think about King David who wrote this song. We're not sure when the psalm was actually written. We don't know whether he was a young man before he experiences the trial and tribulations that not only he caused, but that he himself experienced in the life of community. Or we don't know if this was written when he was older and he was looking back and he went through all the trouble of, I don't know if you know King David's story, but the guy was like, a, he, people try to kill him. And we're not talking about enemies or people. We're talking about like the people of God were trying to kill him. One of them was his own son. And so we don't know whether David was writing this in a youthful idealism, not realizing the challenges that awaited him, that would test the very words that he wrote, or whether he was an older man saying, you know what, I've been through hell and back, and I can tell you the word of God remains true now and forever. It is good and pleasant. I believe. Help my unbelief. Why is David able to say, especially him, that it's good and pleasant, it is the way of life, that this, what I'm sharing with you, isn't just a song. I am sharing wisdom in the form of poetry. 
I think the image is, the, the answer is found in the image of the priesthood where he says a life of community and unity amongst the people of God is like an oil that runs down the beard. And then he gets more specific. And just in case you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm talking about Aaron's beard. I'm talking about the priest. And if you think about the priesthood, this, you'll better understand, and you and I will better understand why David was able to say what he said. The role of a priest was essentially to look amongst the people of God and discern the gaps that exist between people and God, people with each other, and people with themselves. This is why Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love God, to love neighbor, and to love self. Something that Christian leadership doesn't really like people to hear. And so the priest's job was to discern, to be with the people, to listen to the people, to walk with the people, and discern those gaps, those three gaps in people's lives. And then all the priest does is to stand in that gap and then to intercede, to contend for those people. And that contending comes in a couple ways. One is like the uh, prayer is an example where I fall on my knees because I recognize a gap in the people that I love between them and their relationship with God. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to contend and plead with God for their well-being, for their faith. But other times contending means that we are the very instruments of God that choose to remind the people of God that they are loved, they are forgiven, they are redeemed, they are seen and heard, all those things, they are seen by God himself. I'm going to give you two examples of gaps. Gap number one is the gap between faith and doubt. I'm pretty sure you guys have all been there. I mean, I have. I remember one of my seminary professors says, I wake up an atheist every morning and go to bed a Christian. And I never understood what he meant until I woke up and really paid attention to the things my heart and mind were saying. My wife used to say for years, good morning, and she stopped because I would say, I always responded, no such thing. I'm not a morning person. Say good morning. And I said, that's ridiculous. There is nothing good about this experience. I, there isn't a day that, I, that goes by where I don't wake up and the first words out of my mouth are complaints. I complain the first three hours of every day. I'm an ungodly, godless, uh, 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 I'm not good in the morning. So just say morning. But what a priest does is they see and discern, man, there is a gap right now between my friend's faith and, and doubt, that doubt and faith. It creates this gap. And you know what priests do? Priests stand in the gap. They plead with God, and what a good priest does is not, God, would you rid my friend of doubts? No, those doubts are not bad. Properly understood. 
properly understood, they have the potential to be a vehicle that will lead you deeper into faith. Because sometimes all doubts are, are just simple questions that a growing heart is asking. And it's looking for something beyond the trivial, trite, cheesy answers we give. And so a good priest prays that the doubts would be a vehicle that would lead them in and closer to God. Gap number two. The priest has to discern the gap that exists because you and I will never love ourselves as much as Jesus does. People will never love themselves as much as Jesus loves them. And that gap, friends, is, it is a really, really painful place. It is a hard place to live. It is a hard place to be. It is a place that will uh, psychologically, spiritually torment the average person. And what the priest does is we, they stand in the gap knowing that that gap exists. That gap, I would argue, is actually most of the unfortunate things that we see in this world are actually a result of that gap. The priest sees the gap, stands in the gap, intercedes by reminding them, you are loved, you are forgiven, you are seen, and you are heard by God in heaven. And I think this image of priesthood is the key to understanding the goodness and the pleasantness and the wisdom of Psalm 133 because every one of us in this room is sitting here and it's not by accident. This, you and me being here, is not an accident. It didn't just happen. Somebody in our life stood in the gap and prayed for us. Somebody interceded. Somebody contended. Somebody pled for us when they saw us. It's not lost on me that the irony and ridiculousness that I'm a pastor. I'll never forget when I told a high school friend I became a pastor. She was like, you're a pastor? I didn't even know you had faith. And I was like, girl, I went to the same parties as you. Don't talk about it. We're talking about my faith. It's not lost on me. But my grandma stubbornly prayed for decades. God, make him a pastor. (laughs) My Korean name means 10,000 bags of rice. You can laugh. It's okay. It's like a, you get a, like a five-minute permission window there to laugh hard. So my grandma would say, 10,000 bags of rice. What are you going to be when you grow up? And I would say, I'm going to be a pastor. And she said, good boy. Until one day, I went and tried to buy a toy, and I didn't have enough money. And I was like, I ain't going to be a pastor. So she would say, Alex, what are you going to be when you grow up? And I said, I'm going to be a businessman so I could buy the toys that I need in this life. For David, he wasn't moved by a concept to write this song. He wrote it because 
whether he was young or whether he was older, we don't know. What we do know is that every hardship he faced was a greater blessing. That every challenge he faced was an amazing priest who stood in the gap. Sometimes he was in the form of a rebuke. He was always in the form of, of sharing Christ with him. And I want to go a step further and say that you and I are in this room not just because of a priest. We are in this room because of the priest. Luke 22 is one of the strangest stories of all time. It says that Satan entered Judas Iscariot and then he went and betrayed Jesus. A few verses later, Jesus tells Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. He asked for your heart. He asked to occupy your soul. And I prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And what's really remarkable about that story is what Jesus says after that. He says, now Peter, when you turn back, after hearing this, go and strengthen your brothers. In other words, as I am a priest unto you, I want you now to be a priest unto the people in your lives and remind them. Contend for them, plead for them, stand in the gap and minister to them. Why is David able to say good and pleasant, the way of life, the wisdom of God, that though darkness really does exist, David also sees God raising up a priesthood to stand in the gap of that darkness and to contend for them. So what does this priesthood entail? If this is a calling of ours, what does it entail? And I want to go to a cheesy basketball quote that I heard, because um, the older you get, the cheesier things just are so meaningful. <laughs> Kenny Smith is a former basketball player, an NBA champion, played for the Houston Rockets. He um, was asked, and he's also now a TV analyst, and he was asked uh, to share his story about his journey as a young boy and into the NBA as a professional player. And he said this, he, he said, you know, what's interesting is that uh, I, I, I was kind of going down this path and a coach said, you know what, you're not going to make the pros uh, on the trajectory you're on. You simply don't work hard enough. You don't want this bad enough. And Kenny Smith said something that I, I have written down. He said, the key for me was not to do the extraordinary. I learned to do the ordinary extra. When I think about the priesthood, I think that is the greatest description of what it means to be a priest. It doesn't mean that you go and fly across and, and you, you know, become a martyr or you do all these extraordinary things for God. No, it actually means that we do the plain, the simple, the boring, the ordinary extra. It means something like when someone in your life is going through suffering, and you know, I got to say this, just I don't mean to like, you know, uh, 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 preach at the choir, but you know, Christians, we are the worst in suffering. 
Sometimes Christians are the last people you want to talk to when you're suffering. And the reason why is we feel this need to make people feel better. We want to lift them up right away rather than just sit in the mud with them. And so that's what it means to be a priest. The priest isn't to have this, this amazing spiritual power that I have the ability to lift you up out of depression. I don't have a cure for your anxiety. I don't have the words that are going to help you grieve your losses. I'm just going to sit with you. And even though there are joys in my life, I will hurt with the body of Christ. This is the priesthood, brothers and sisters. When I came to Imago three years ago, uh, many of you don't know this. I would say none of you know this, actually. I came to this church very wounded. I was wounded because of my last church, because of my pain and unresolved issues in my heart and spiritual fatigue, physical fatigue. I hurt people. And in turn, hurting people hurt me. And when I got here, my faith in the church, capital C, was waning. I mean, I did a good job of faking it. I mean, you guys, I mean, hopefully you bought it, you know. But I, I was not hanging by a, a small, a thin thread, or I was not hanging, you know, it wasn't like tiny. It was significant enough to be able to serve, but it had taken a hit. And what I found was that God would use this church, very unexpected blessing was that God would use you as a community to restore my faith in the church. And one of the things that, that happened as my faith in the church started to grow, um, I also experienced this uh, growing desire to serve as a lead pastor again. And so because of this, I talked to my wife, I talked to my kids, I talked to my inner circle, and I actually applied for the lead pastor position at Imago. It was determined I wasn't a fit, and even though I was incredibly disappointed to not be able to serve Imago in that capacity, I have to say that that sense of calling was strong. The reason why I share this with you is that though I'm disappointed, my family and I, we see, we saw, we see God's hand in all this process. We watched the elders pray and earnestly seek God in this process. And so we, we are very comfortable with accepting this as God's will for Imago, but also God's will for us. But one of the things that is a result of this, though, is that um, I will, I'm going to let the elders know that I'm going to serve the church in the transition very well. I've transitioned out of lead pastor positions three times, and I know how important that work is. And so I let the elders know that I am committed to the work of transition. But after the work of transition is done, I will be seeking an opportunity to serve as a lead pastor. And while this means another change in, a, uh, another change in the life of our community here, I wanted to share this to, number one, just be straight up honest with you guys. I don't do the God's calling me. I, I don't do that, that stuff. I don't do that. 
I want to be straight up with a church that has been straight up with me from day one. And, and, I, and I want you also to understand that um, though the timeline isn't set, I'll be working with the elders and the new lead pastor to figure out what does that transition work look like and how long will it take. But I wanted to update you. I wanted to thank you and also encourage you to continue to be a priest to one another and the city. Because I'm telling you, from somebody within this community, this, this ordinary done extra is, it's actually, it matters. It really, really makes a difference. And I'll tell you why. When uh, the last three weeks were not easy, it was weird. It wasn't easy, but, but there were so many priests and priestesses that rose up. And not a single one of them tried to comfort me in the disappointment. None of them try to make me feel better. One of my friends, you know what he did? He said, you got this crazy thing going on in your life. You have nine people in your home. You have one car that seats five. Really seats four. And you know what he did? He said, you're going to borrow my car indefinitely. I can't tell you how much that meant to me. I can tell you that one of my friends uh, actually said, hey, I'm going to be going to the coast. Would you and your family like to come out for a night just to hang out? Other people just texted, we're praying. Other people emailed that they were praying. And it was these simple things that just God would use to have people stand in the gap of my heart and do the ordinary extra over and over and over again. My father-in-law and mother-in-law, very strong believers. My father-in-law goes to church every day at 5 a.m., every day, and he prays. And he prayed for me. He didn't call me once, he didn't text me, and it's, cause he didn't love, it's not because he doesn't love me, he just prayed, because that's what good priests do. My mother-in-law, she's not, a, she's not a morning person, so she didn't pray at 5 a.m., she prayed at 9.15. Uh, after she had her cup of coffee. But you know, one of the things that I, I want to end with is to not only say thanks, but that we, that you and I would be a priest to one another because we recognize not only the lowercase priests, lowercase p priests that come in our lives, but the priest who showed up in our life. And every week, what I love about Imago is we are one of the few churches that do communion every single week because we remind ourselves of this great high priestly work of Jesus and we apply it to our hearts. And today, I'm going to ask you to do communion a little bit differently. And that is, I'm going to ask that you would apply it to your heart, but also minister to, another, uh, to, another, to others. And I want to explain this because last time it was a little chaotic. So let's get a little logistical here, people. I'm going to ask that you come forward and you receive communion. After you receive communion, I'm going to ask that you wait until the next person comes forward. And you simply take the bread and you offer it to them and you say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. And you take the juice and say, this is the blood of Christ shed for you. If you are a large party of seven or eight, 
that would cause a lot of issues, traffic jams on the five last time. And so I'm going to ask that uh, most of you go back to your seats and just have one or two remaining from your group and minister communion to the person behind. We're also going to have here uh, our hospitality team who will stand in the gap. And if there's any table that is missing, please just go forward and somebody will administer communion to you. But I want us to do communion in this strange way so that we, begin, we can physically commit to do, being the priesthood of all believers that Jesus calls us to be. So that this church will continue to be a light in this city. Let's pray. Jesus, I thought the kind of, um, of grafting the update into my sermon was going to be smoother, but it, it's, just, it's just one of these strange things. But I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would take all of our hearts back to your word. You would take us back to that picture of a song, a poem that was offered to the church till Jesus returns so that we can see what, what um, your wisdom has to say about this life and our journey. We ask that you would help us to believe and that you would help us in our unbelief and that we would day by day be able to declare good and pleasant is it when brothers and sisters choose to be in community and dwell in unity. And Father, as we minister to one another, we pray that you would bring to light, give us that priestly discernment to know the gaps that exist in the lives of people around us, to stand in the gap and to contend on behalf of them and declare your gospel over them. So as we come to the table to receive and to give, we pray that you would strengthen and build up our church to continue the work that you've called us to do, which is to set the hearts of the people in this city free with the love of Jesus. Jesus, we thank you. We, we cherish you. And we ask that you would meet us in a very special place here today. Amen. At this time, whenever you're ready, please come forward to receive the elements and remember, this is the body of Christ that was broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. And please minister and serve one another uh, this sacred meal that Jesus instituted.